October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, episode 23, A Country Between Them. Last time, we talked about how many wonderful things happened in the early 1870s for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The early 70s were really the great expansion west. John Loughborough headed to California and found fertile soil there. James also went into CEO mode and fixed the Western Health Reform Institute by placing John Harvey Kellogg in charge. Though the church also took on Goodloe Harper Bell's school, which would soon become Battle Creek College. James and Ellen also found some much-needed rest in Colorado on their way to join Loughborough in California. The church was pushing west into new fields, and the health and education wings of the church were doing better than ever. The 70s were a growth spurt for the church, just like the 50s. In that first growth spurt, there was a conflict over whether James should start printing a regular newspaper, which became the Review, of course. Joseph Bates, as you may recall, strongly disagreed, and in that discussion, the future direction of the church hung in the balance. Looking back, it's hard to know what the church would have become had James not won that argument. What would Avenus history look like without the review? I strongly suspect we wouldn't be having nearly so many episodes of this podcast if that was the case. Well, the 70s were another crossroads for the church. Like we said last time, so much of who and what Adventism has become emerged or matured in this decade. Adventists have the largest Protestant school system in the world, and it emerged from this one school in Battle Creek. Many of the men and women who will become players in the church in the final, crucial decades of the 19th century rose up during this time, too. For example, Alonzo T. Jones was baptized in meetings in Walla Walla, Washington, while he was stationed there in the Army. Jones will later stand before the United States Congress on behalf of the church, and he also bears a creepy resemblance to Senator Ted Cruz. Seriously, look him up. Oh, and just as an interesting aside, Ted Cruz's wife, Heidi, was raised Adventist in, you guessed it, California. Well, maybe that isn't just an aside, because the reason why I mention this is so that we can realize that we're not talking about things that happened that long ago. We can trace a direct line from the work of Loughborough in California through the 1870s to Heidi Cruz being born into an Adventist family there. The 1870s weren't perhaps as critical as the early 1850s were, but they essentially laid the foundation for the modern Seventh-day Adventist church. All of this expansion brought a lot of stress to the church as well. So even as James and Ellen were fixing things in the early 70s, there was a lot of tension. James had just recovered from his stroke when the school and the health institute were just getting started in the late 1860s. Ellen White had warned him, warned everyone really, to stop being a workaholic. But now you have a health institute and a school starting up and need for organization out west. There simply weren't enough leaders to manage all of this, and James White is definitely not going to take time and smell the roses. James White is going to work. Now, we left James and Ellen in Colorado last time, where they were enjoying a nice and unexpected break. Merritt Kellogg, the pioneer of the work in California, wrote to Ellen White, saying, I am grieved to learn that Brother White is so poorly. 
He has worked himself down and must have rest. Do come immediately to California and rest. Brother White must cease brain labor for a time. I suppose he feels that he must work, 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 and that the cause will suffer if he does not work. But if he works himself into the grave, then we will have to get along some way without him. Merritt Kellogg was not a prophet by trade, but in this statement he could have fooled me. When the Whites finally got to California, James was refreshed to find fresh pastures for his considerable talents. It didn't take him long to realize that California needed its own paper. Oh, the review was good enough, but it was too far away. And by the time an issue was released, it could take a week to reach the people of California, so they would always be an issue behind everyone else. Besides, so many of the announcements in the review were about people and places in the East. So he decided to call this new paper The Signs of the Times, and decided that he wanted a new Adventist publishing house to print it. At the 1874 California camp meeting, James made an appeal and received $19,414 in pledges and gold dust. Can you imagine passing around an offering plate and seeing someone dump a handful of gold dust in? He returned east, picked up another $10,000 and some young people, and returned to California to set it all up. He decided to call the new publishing house Pacific Press. And of course, both it and Signs of the Times are still around today. James loved the new paper. If you ask me, I'd say I think he got tired of merely managing well-developed institutions. James White liked building things and organizing things. And even though he was officially in charge of the college in Battle Creek, he did less and less actual work with it. He felt that a college-educated person should lead it, but we'll get to that next time. The point is that he loved, loved, loved the new paper. He would travel around buying paper and other materials for it. He sent his sons to work on it. He told Willie that signs of the times must be and can be our best paper. He even told Willie that it was already better than the review. The unspoken rule at this point was that signs would do for the West what the review would do for the East, with the Rocky Mountains as a boundary between them. The problem is that James micromanaged his sons, who ran the paper's day-to-day -day operation. He was constantly nagging Willie about the smallest changes, telling him to send money to this place or pay this or that bill which James had incurred. James's finances became tangled between his personal and professional life, and while there's no evidence he did anything wrong, we can see why there was always someone in the church doubting his practices. James kept his own counsel buying paper or tools and reselling them to the press as he saw fit for a price that he decided. Of course, his sons dutifully paid the bills, which just looked suspicious. James didn't do anything wrong, but he often organized these things so that he could get things done as efficiently as possible. If you haven't figured it out by now, James White was driven. He only cared just a little bit about how things looked. He knew his own integrity, and he expected everyone else to know it as well. Meanwhile, Ellen White had decided to push a different cause, temperance. The temperance movement at this time was global, and was transitioning from promoting temperance in alcohol to abstinence. The Salvation Army was formed in London in 1864 with this very goal in mind. Temperance was an increasingly popular cause in America, too, and Adventists loved it. While some Adventists, including a minister named D.M. Canwright, were preaching in Oakland, 
there was an important vote on whether or not to ban alcohol in the city. Temperance advocates asked the Adventists if they could use their tents to hold rallies, and the Adventists agreed. The vote was passed by a couple of hundred votes to great rejoicing. Local papers thanked the Adventists for their generous support for the cause, and this began an intriguing partnership between Ellen White and the temperance movement. Back east, Ellen spoke at a Methodist church in Battle Creek on the Tuesday night temperance meeting. She told them all about the great victory in Oakland, and if it was a little weird to be back in a Methodist church from which her and her family had been kicked out as kids, she didn't show it. Instead, they cheered her story, and Ellen White seemed genuinely shocked by the naked enthusiasm they had for the work of temperance, and for her. The Methodists immediately changed the day of their next temperance meetings from Friday night to Thursday night so that the Adventists could attend. Except, you know, few Adventists actually showed up. Probably, I would say, for fear of associating themselves with those Babylonian Christians who go to church on Sunday. After all, hadn't most Adventists left these churches in order to become Adventists in the first place? Why would they go back and join with them? Still, this led Ellen White to complain that, quote, I think our people are in danger of being too narrow, and not broad and generous and courteous as they must be if they would do good, end quote. The next week, Ellen White spoke outside to a huge group of temperance people well into the night. She would go on to earn a reputation as a temperance speaker among churches that knew nothing else about her or Seventh-day Adventists. She would travel the world for the cause, saying it was her favorite subject to speak on. Doors would open to Ellen White because of her ecumenical approach to temperance that so many Christians and non-Christians could agree upon that otherwise wouldn't be open to her. Back to Battle Creek, in 1874, the General Conference there met and decided three crucial things. First, they enthusiastically cheered the evangelistic efforts going on in California, which James White called a mission field. This was good because James White started the paper and set up a press on his own dime and with all of that money that he had raised without any official church approval. So, good job, you're covered, James. Second, the General Conference decided that James White should have a third stint at president because, you know, the first two just went so well. The current General Conference president, George Ida Butler, was a leader in James's mold, but never forgot how much the church owed to James and felt deferential to the founder. So the change of leadership probably felt natural to Butler, who might have viewed his own presidency as owing itself to James's ill health. James was better now, so give the man his chair again. The funny part is that James didn't really want it. He was enjoying himself out west. But James White scarcely says no to responsibility, so give the man his chair again. The third resolution at the conference was to send J.N. Andrews as the church's first foreign missionary to Europe. Now, saying that Andrews was the first official foreign missionary needs some clarification. We emphasize the word official because that flamboyant former Polish priest, M.B. Chakowsky, was the first Seventh-day Adventist to travel to Europe some ten years before the church even thought about sending a missionary there. We talked about him back in episode 14, and it's largely due to Chakowsky that they even considered sending a missionary now. No one had really known what on earth Chakowsky was doing in Europe, and many Adventists just assumed that he had left the faith and did his own thing. In reality, Tchaikovsky had traveled from Switzerland to Romania, preaching his heart out. 
And if Battle Creek didn't know about Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky didn't tell his European converts much about Battle Creek, either. Even today, this guy is shrouded in mystery. I mean, what was his plan? Was he just going to convert the whole continent of Europe and then never tell them that they had brothers and sisters in America? Well, we know that he was funded by a group of first-day Adventists who thought that he was over there proclaiming what they believed, so maybe he was just being extra careful to keep his true allegiances hidden. In any case, the gig was up in 1873 when one of his converts discovered a copy of the review which Tchaikovsky had in his room and realized that there was a lot of people in America who believed just like them. These Swiss believers needed help. They needed a connection with the church in America. Of course, the Adventist church had no one to spare to go to Europe for a period of years. They needed every leader they had for the medical work or the educational work or for the work out west in California. But they also didn't want to lose the believers in Switzerland. So they decided to send Andrews. Now it would take Andrews another two years to finally make it to Europe, but there you have it, the first official missionary. Now, I also say the word, the first official foreign missionary, because, like we said, James White certainly considered California to be a mission field needing missionaries. In any case, Jan Andrews, first official foreign missionary of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, was approved. Now, the church wasn't completely unprepared for the idea of going overseas, especially to Europe. For a few years now, they had been translating their literature and books into European languages, German, Danish, French, so on, because of all the immigrants that were settling in the Midwest. Work among the Scandinavians and Germans of Iowa and Wisconsin and Minnesota was going well. So when Andrews was headed to Switzerland, the church at least had some literature to send with him. James White summed up the situation very well in a review article when he said that nearly every person with ability was being sent in one direction or another, so that the heartland of Adventism, mainly New England and now Michigan, felt bereft of ministers. James told the churches not to feel entitled to their pastors, but to develop more people for the work. Who will go to England? James asked. Ours is a worldwide mission, and every brother and sister among us should drink down that spirit of freedom and liberality that cares for the whole world. In other words, stop thinking of your own church or your own state. The ambition of the Seventh-day Adventist Church was not to be a big church in America, but to be a global church. The ambition meant that the church would be spread thin over a huge territory because they seldom stayed to develop one area long enough before moving on to the next. There was more than enough work to be done in the East, but new opportunities were too tempting, and so the Seventh-day Adventist Church is spread across the whole world today. Few churches exist in more countries, but it's spread thin, and this is why. One of the few surprises for Adventist historians and just Adventists in general was that this was also a period of intense marital problems for James and Ellen White. Now, it was mostly kept private, of course, and even still, we don't really have a full picture of what happened. Much of what we know is from Ellen White's side of the story, but we do have some letters from James as well. Both James and Ellen felt the other person was trying to control them. Now, that's not particularly hard to understand. Ellen was a less confident person than James, but when she felt God wanted James to do something, she would work hard to do it. 
We talked a couple of episodes ago about James's first stroke and how she felt James needed physical labor to help him recover. So she positively conspired with the neighbors to tell James they wouldn't help him. And I'm not really sure if James ever found out about that trick. James, as you very well know, was a towering, dominant leader. It's easy to imagine how he might come to tell Ellen what to do from time to time. And yet before the 1870s, we really don't have evidence of James going too far in stepping on Ellen's toes. They always worked together with harmony. So what changed? It's hard to say exactly, but definitely James's strokes were making him more and more irritable and impatient. He was becoming depressed more in these years, as the growing church seemed increasingly out of his control. This may have led him to exert control in other areas of his life, but we really don't know. When James was healthy, it was easier for him to soften some of the harder points of his personality. When he was ill, he, like all the rest of us, finds it harder to be patient with people. Mood swings are also somewhat common among stroke victims, and Ellen White bore the brunt of those. She wrote to Lucinda Hall, her friend, that James wanted the entire control of me, soul and body, but this he cannot have. I sometimes think, Ellen White wrote, he is not really a sane man, but I don't know. One of their sources of disagreement was over their son, Edson. Edson rebelled against his parents and their faith for reasons that really have become stereotypical. All the time that he grew up, he spent so many months and weeks with family and friends while his parents traveled and preached. Of course, this happened to Willie also, but Willie had the temperament to want to please his parents, while Edson had more of James's dominant personality. It didn't help that when Edson acted out, both parents would often dismiss his concerns and tell him to be more like Willie. James even told Willie a few things that would make any modern parent cringe. He said that Edson, quote, will always be a burden to us, more or less, and we must do the best we can with the matter. James also told Willie to watch Edson closely, quote, and not let him loose or bring a disgrace upon himself and the family, end quote. That close relationship between Willie and his parents, where Willie was apparently Edson's babysitter, certainly drove Edson further away. It sounds like James is essentially telling Willie to just keep a lid on Edson and let's just all hope he grows up someday. It sounds like James didn't have the inclination to listen to Edson, but let's be careful here. James and Ellen both wrote things to Edson that, in hindsight, are really terrible things for parents to say. Ellen later realized this and regretted it. But let's keep in mind that we don't have all of the letters or all of the facts, and we don't know all of what happened in their home. For instance, was James just rashly dismissing his son's complaints out of hand? Or did his cold words arrive after dozens and dozens of attempts to try to work things out with his son? We don't know. So while the things they wrote will never win them Parents of the Year awards, we do know that they love their sons. It just so happens that Edson went the way of the typical pastor's kid. He'd be abandoned time and again for the sake of a preaching appointment in this town or an article that urgently needed to be written. He was drowning in church this and church that, starved for attention. So he acted out. He wanted attention. He once spent the equivalent of a month's salary on a jacket, which drove his dad absolutely bonkers. Frivolous shopping sprees ended up being the most common complaint both parents had with Edson. But since James was the businessman in the family, it was particularly offensive to him. Time and again, 
He had to bail Edson out of some debt or another. Time and again, he offered to help Edson buy a house or find a job. If only Edson would meet him halfway. And time and again, Edson would agree and then go back to his old ways. In anger, exasperated, James would threaten to let Edson drive himself into debt and to suffer the consequences himself. But yet, he just never could really seem to bring himself to that. James's enemies loved the show. They picked up on Edson's failures and threw them back in James's face. James must be embezzling money, or else Edson couldn't secretly go out and buy all this stuff, right? James also didn't believe that Edson had any ambition, that he was aimless and needed direction in life. And this James sought to provide, if only Edson were willing. So that's when James put Edson and Willie to work for the Signs of the Times in Oakland, thinking that his sons would benefit from working directly underneath him. James's micromanaging style didn't exactly help, but, to his credit, he thought his sons were talented and good for so much more than the average worker. He wanted Willie, for instance, not to learn how to do the mechanics of printing, but to learn how to be an editor. He had the frustration of many parents who saw their children's potential and wanted them to reach a higher level than many kids around them. This situation affected the marriage when James was all but done helping Edson out, while Ellen would still give Edson some money. James didn't think that they were offering a united front as parents, that it undermined his authority as Edson's father, and that Ellen was simply enabling Edson to keep going on the course that he was. And this was a serious thorn in, the, in their side for over a decade, off and on, to the point where James once erupted that he couldn't bear to be in the same state as Edson. Like many clerics, James was actually very sensitive and felt that Ellen defended Edson too much when the son lashed out at the father. James finally declared that he and Ellen should never write to each other about Edson if they were ever to get along. James, broken by stroke after stroke in these years, no longer had the patience to handle Ellen White's critique of things that he was doing wrong. She was far more introspective than he was, and so she saw defects, both his and hers, more clearly than he did. And in his state of mind, he called this fault-finding, and increasingly became unable to handle criticism in any form. He wrote to Ellen, quote, When you have a message from the Lord for me, I hope I shall be where I shall tremble at his word. But aside from that, you must let me be an equal, or we had better be working alone. He added that, quote, While on the stage of action, I shall use the good old head God gave me until he reveals that I am wrong. Your head won't fit on my shoulders. Keep it where it belongs, end quote. Ellen White's letters to Lucinda Hall show how frustrated she was, even sarcastic at times, and yet she was never disrespectful to James. I hope, Ellen White wrote, that when my husband left, he did not take God with him and leave us to walk by the light of our own eyes, end quote. She wrote again that, quote, I hope God has not left me to receive my duty through my husband, end quote. But as soon as she wrote something so sharp, she would often soften it. I have not lost my love for my husband, she said, but I cannot explain things. She wrote to James in the May of 1876 from Oakland, quote, It grieves me that I have said or written anything to grieve you. Forgive me, and I will be cautious not to start any subject to annoy you or distress you. End quote. Ellen went on to say that time was short in their old age, she was 48, by the way, and that they can have 
differences of opinion without fighting about it. Before long, James had another stroke, and she was by his side caring for him yet again. She called both of them to follow the example of Jesus and humble themselves where they would find peace. What's fascinating about the whole affair is not just that James and Ellen were human. I mean, of course they were. But how they generally treated each other with respect, even while fighting. James never doubted Ellen White's prophetic gift. And if God had given her a vision saying that he was wrong, well, he said he would believe it. Now, I don't know about you, but if Ellen were a phony, wouldn't that be a good time to fake a vision and tell your husband that he's wrong? Wouldn't you just want to end the fight and win it with the greatest trump card anybody could play? Instead, they worked through their differences like the rest of us. With all of these new initiatives, the school and the health institute and missionaries now, James felt overwhelmed and constantly stressed out. This would be his longest stint as General Conference President from 1874 to 1880, and it would be his last. He was suffering from many strokes that would cripple him for a time. His son was rebelling and embarrassing him. He was depressed from time to time under the weight of all of this. But James White was wired to work, to take it all upon his shoulders and carry it forward. But it was all too heavy for him now. Of course, many people helped. It's not that Andrews and Uriah Smith and Loughborough did nothing. They certainly shared the burden. But Uriah Smith, for instance, he was the editor of the Review. And James felt the responsibility for every facet of the work. So even though Smith was doing his thing and Andrews was doing his thing and Loughborough was doing his thing, James felt responsibility for all of it. In James White, we see the good and the bad laid next to each other. We see his short temper, his dominating style, his failure to delegate, or even to always trust his people to do their job their own way. But my goodness, look at what this man was accomplishing. The Seventh-day Adventist Church was built upon this man's back. Nothing stopped him, not when they were poor, not the strokes, not the long distances he had to travel constantly, not conflicts with other people. Nothing slowed James White down. And even during their fighting years, Ellen White told him, quote, I have the highest estimate of your ability, and with the power of God to work with your efforts, you can do a great and efficient work. God can mend the broken and worn machinery and make it of essential use to do his work still. Only believe, only be cheerful, only be of good courage. Let the disagreeables go. Turn from these things which cause sadness and which dishearten you. I will ever be true to you, and I want you to have no suspicion or distrust of me that I would say or do the least thing to hurt you or lessen the confidence of your brethren in you. Never, never will I do this. I will sustain and help you all I can. In love, your Ellen. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. 
Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.